Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And today we're talking to Professor Matthew Smith. He is a professor of health history at the University of Strathclyde Center for Social History of Health and Healthcare. His books include Another Person's Poison, A History of Food Allergy, which was published by Columbia in 2015, and Hyperactive, The Controversial History of ADHD, which was published by Columbia in 2012, and Just Off the Presses, the book he is here to discuss with us today, The First Resort, The History of Social Psychiatry in the United States, which um, was just published by Columbia last month, I believe. Um, Matthew, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Claire. It's nice to be here. Wonderful. Um, I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this work. Okay. Well, it's it's a bit of a long story, but I'll try to keep it relatively short. So I I did history as a as an undergraduate student, but didn't really have much uh <laughs> expectation of, of having an academic career. I went and did an education degree and then couldn't get a job. And so I ended up working for the YMCA. And uh, at that at that job, I started to work with uh, young people who were struggling in life, let's say. So they had uh, been kicked out of school or they left school, uh, get involved with criminal justice issues, gangs, drugs, all sorts of gnarly life experiences. And while I was doing that work, uh, we tended to be encouraged to, I suppose, find explanations for these children's uh, problems by looking above their eyebrows, as, as sometimes I say. So there wasn't any, there wasn't much consideration of their family life or their socioeconomic circumstances. It was all about determining whether they might have a, a learning dis- disability or ADHD or autism or something like that, and then basically taking a biomedical approach to it all. And after a while, I guess I started to get a bit frustrated by this, and that ended up uh, that spurred me to look at the history of ADHD, which dominated my early career. Um, but I was still interested in the the broader socioeconomic circumstances uh, experienced by people who deal with people who end up having mental health problems. And so, uh, during the course of my research on ADHD. I started to look at some other explanations for mental health problems that emerged, especially during the middle part of the 20th century, and especially in the United States. And that's how I started getting interested in social psychiatry. I was lucky enough um, to get uh, an Arts and Humanities Research Council grant uh, here in the UK to spend a couple years researching this topic. 
and eventually uh, the book came out <laughs> and it's I'm very pleased that it's finally out because I suppose it, it's it's been a long term it's it's been a project that's been a long time coming since in some ways it started when I was working for the Y in, in the late 90s um, but on the other hand it also sort of signifies for me um, an attempt to get I guess to ensure that history is involved in contemporary debates when it comes to mental health. And this this has certainly been the case in some of my previous work, but probably the most strong, it's it's probably emphasized most strongly in this particular book. So that that's, I suppose, uh, one version of how I got, <laughs> got this book off, off the ground. I know there are always, um, uh, these projects are always overdetermined for us, but, um, but that's, that's great. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, what is social psychiatry and what have other historians of psychiatry written about it sort of so far? So social psychiatry is sort of a protean term. It's been described or defined in different ways at different times and places uh, so sometimes it's associated over here with more therapeutic communities, so alternative spaces for mental health care. Sometimes it's associated with transcultural psychiatry, so understanding the sociocultural context in which mental illness and mental health uh, are experienced. Uh, but for me, and this I think is the more most you know, more the North American definition. It's, it's seen as an interdisciplinary approach to mental health that combines the insights of the social sciences and psychiatry, and it emphasizes looking at the root socioeconomic uh, causes or contributors to, uh, to mental illness, and most importantly, it tries to articulate ways to prevent mental illness by tackling these socioeconomic factors. Great. Oh, um, I, sorry, I didn't get to the second part of the question. Yeah, so I suppose maybe one of the reasons it took me a little while to to get around to this topic was that it it hasn't been something that a lot of historians have focused on. Uh, historians of psychiatry and mental health have tended to look more at the history of the asylum. Uh, more recently, they've looked a lot at the history of uh, psychopharmacology. So you have all these wonderful books on different psychoactive substances and their impact on, on mental health or their uh, their use as treatments, for example. Um, and we've also had lots of books on uh, mental health related to, you know, looking at different themes, so gender and mental health, or the history of gender and mental health, or the history of race and mental health. Um, no, there hadn't, there, there had been some uh, attempts to look at social psychiatry, but never, <laughs> never really from the approach that I wanted to look at it. So, there were some books that looked at it kind of in line with anti-psychiatry and I didn't, you know, I didn't, although there are some connections there, I didn't think that was really the social psychiatry I was interested in. There were some, uh, some books that kind of looked at individual, maybe community or not books, articles that might look at little 
community mental health centers and what they got up to. But when, for the most part, when social psychiatry was discussed by historians, and not many did, but when, when they did, it tended to be dismissed fairly uh, quickly as something that was uh, either fanciful or overly idealistic or sometimes over ideological. And I guess my reading of the, of the primary sources was that actually there was more to this than what a lot of historians had ga- given it credit for. And I thought that Although the although social psychiatry might not have had the outcomes that uh, its its followers might have liked, um, there was a I think it had been thrown up out with the bathwater to a certain extent, and that um, the time was ripe to really reappraise it, not just for the sake of setting the story right in terms of the historiography, but also in terms of how we might approach mental illness today, and especially its preventive uh, aspects. Okay, well, well, great. Well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the material you're working with here. So you write that the first resort combines an overview of the rise and fall of psychiatry in the United States in chapters one and six with case studies then in chapters two and five of the most notable social psychiatric studies. Can you tell us a little bit about why you provide these kind of rich histories of social psychiatric research? Because these, I'm, I, I don't know, our listeners may be surprised to hear this is fascinating research about social psychiatric studies. <laughs> Yeah, I, I aggravated quite a bit about the, f- the format for the book, the structure of the book, uh, because because there were these these four really key studies. There's certainly many other social psychiatric studies, but I saw these as the most important, and yet they were all very different. So on the one hand, and I should say, when I was doing my master's degree back at the University of Alberta in the early 2000s, I I did a class uh, that looked at science and technology studies. And I was was always really drawn to the idea of, okay, how, how is science and how is scientific knowledge and medical knowledge and psychiatric knowledge socially constructed? What are, what are the what are the factors that that contribute towards how uh, conclusions are drawn and how projects are developed and all that kind of stuff? So, I think in a way those chapters in, <laughs> indulge my science studies um, uh, interests, and so each of those studies, uh, there's one on Chicago, one on New Haven, one on New York City, and and one on Nova Scotia. They're all very different in that they they have they take on different places, and so that's the the setting for the social psychiatry is different. The setting for the socioeconomic factors is different. The people involved there is a little bit of overlap, but by and large, the people involved are quite different, and they have their own baggage. And the way in which these studies progress is is quite different, uh, and yet they all end up providing evidence for uh, the key role of socioeconomic factors in in mental health outcomes. So I thought it was important to look at these four key studies, partly because I think in order to understand 
why psychiatric knowledge evolves in the way it does, it's important to really, you know, lift the hood up and see what's underneath, see see how the projects actually work. And luckily with some of these there were some really rich archival resources. So you could, you know, I could I could literally see how how the project was uh was progressing or not, <laughs> depending on the circumstance. But I also I also thought that it, it, each one of these projects, although they 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 argue overall for these social these different socioeconomic factors, they each one of them emphasized a slightly different one, and I thought that was important as well because um, you know so, social psychiatry uh, emphasized overall that factors like poverty, inequality, and and I, I kind of lump in although none of these studies really look at race specifically i i i myself kind of include racism in with inequality in, in this respect also social isolation and community disintegration and each one of them emphasizes one of these factors uh, a little bit more than the others so i thought it was important to to present all four of them partly to to give you know make sure that people understand that these really fascinating epidemiological studies exist but also to provide evidence for my arguments around why we shouldn't be throwing uh, or why social psychiatry shouldn't have been uh, treated in this dismissive fashion and that we should reconsider a lot of the insights that it, it uh, produced today. So these really rich um, uh, sort of analyses of uh, these uh, case studies of different um, large pieces of social psychiatric research are kind of bookended by um, the rise of social psychiatry and then the fall of social psychiatry. So I'm going to kind of um, zoom back a little bit and um, ask you to tell us a little bit about the origins of social psychiatry. So how does the book start out? Sure. So although social psychiatry uh, really blossoms in the middle part of the 20th century, it certainly is built on the foundations of what's happening uh, during the first half of the 20th century, and there really are three main uh, three main factors that contribute to the rise of social psychiatry. The first and probably the most direct one is uh, that are, are the mental hygiene and child guidance movements uh, that emerged uh, in the United States and sp- spreads to different parts of the world later on, but certainly a a U.S. innovation. So these were, um, these, this approach to to mental health really emerges uh, around, well, in 1908, if we want to be specific, uh, with with the publication of Clifford Beard's uh, Mind That Found Itself. So Clifford Beard's Beard's, uh, first sets up uh, a mental hygiene association in Connecticut, and then he he, he very shortly sets up a a U.S.-based one, and the the, uh, Johns Hopkins-based psychiatrist Adolf Meyer is involved. And and this, this approach to mental health is very much uh, a reaction to some of the issues that were emerging in the asylum uh, during this period. So kind of recognizing that we that in order to deal with mental health more effectively, we can't just shut people away in asylums. We have to think about how mental illness emerges, why it emerges, and the sort of factors that can be changed in society to 
to make you know make make, make the situation better for people. So um, mental hygiene focused is sort of an umbrella term within that there's also child guidance uh, child guidance stretches beyond just mental health it looks a lot at physical health but the these two approaches really come out of the progressive era in the united states and kind of the the idea that that if people and if science really comes to grips with social problems, we can come with come up with solutions. And so, throughout uh, the United States, you see mental hygiene and child guidance clinics popping up. You see uh, new professions like psychiatric social workers emerging, and these these people really start to come to grips with what's happening in these cases. So, the social workers enter the homes of people who are struggling with mental health problems. They try to find out what's happening in these communities. And so social psychiatry from a, um, I guess, from a clinical perspective is definitely based on this, uh, these, these uh, precedents of, social, of mental hygiene and child guidance. From a more intellectual perspective, it is really rooted in the blossoming of social science, especially sociology and anthropology during the first decades of the 20th century, and especially how sociologists and anthropologists first become interested in mental illness, and then eventually how psychiatrists start getting interested in what the sociologists and anthropologists are saying about mental illness. So, um, where this really blossoms uh, first, I would argue, is in Chicago with the Chicago School of Sociology. But you get um, many, many illustrious anthropologists and sociologists, Margaret Mead, for example, uh, starting to examine different aspects of mental health. And then eventually, so uh, psychiatrists start getting interested in this and they start to work together. And this this is a key feature of social psychiatry is this interdisciplinarity, which and I would argue puts to shame most of the feeble attempts at interdisciplinary that we that we uh, think we're doing today. Um, in these projects, the social psychiatry projects, are genuinely interdisciplinary. And you know, sometimes that came with a lot of struggle, um, but it really is impressive how how these projects, you know, genuinely bring together the insights of psychiatrists and social scientists in 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 order to try to explain what's going on, and then the final uh, the final uh, uh, factor is is a political factor, and that's really the Second World War and how psychiatry in the United States really comes to the fore during the Second World War, partly because of attempts to screen out uh, candidates or recruits who are deemed to be psychiatrically unfit, and they end up screening out about a million people um, uh, who, who wanted to join the U.S. Armed Forces but were rejected on psychiatric grounds. And then despite that, they still have over a million hospital admissions on psychiatric grounds. So during the course of the Second World War, psychiatry really gains an awful lot of respect, respect that it has not always enjoyed. And with that respect came a lot of uh, political clout. And that uh, resulted in in the National Institute of Mental Health, um, which is a which comes right out of the it's it's uh, basically founded in 1946, and then comes into being fully in 1949. So 
these three factors are, are really the foundation on which uh, uh, social psychiatry that emerges after uh, the war is built on. So you write about how social psychiatry emerges in these years following World War II, but then its vision really comes closest to being realized in the 1960s with the passage of the Community Mental Health Act, which funded the construction of hundreds of community mental health centers between 1963 and 1980. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about community mental health centers centers, and what role they play in the story you tell. Sure. So... Community mental health was, I suppose, the the practical application of social psychiatry. Now, there could have been other, and I would argue there should be other applications of social psychiatry, but during the 1960s, um, especially, this is really how the theory of social psychiatry is applied. And it's it's not just because of social psychiatry. Community mental health is also really a response to concerns about psychiatric asylums, which certainly, certainly had not gone away since 1908 and Clifford Beers. Um, and there, it, it's... The the, uh, the emergence of psychopharmacology also provides some optimism that people can be treated successfully outside of institutions, but social psychiatry really provides the the intellectual heft for it all. Um, community mental health centers uh, were initially envisioned as being both preventive centers and clinical centers for treatment. So on the one hand, you would have psychiatrists and social workers uh, working with people, nurses and psychologists working uh, with patients in community mental health centers to deal with acute mental health problems. But on the other hand, they were also meant to try to work closely with the communities in which they uh, were situated to try to prevent mental health problems from emerging in the first place. And as as it happened, uh, the their efforts ended up focusing more on the former than the latter. So the preventative elements started to fall by the wayside pretty quickly. But there were some quite interesting approaches to to preventative mental health. Probably my favorite comes in the form of the use of, of so-called indigenous paraprofessionals or, or indigenous non-professionals. So these were people employed by community mental health centers who came from the community, who did not have much formal education, certainly not a college degree or anything like that, uh, but represented the community and effectively worked as, as kind of both fixers and the bridge between the people who worked in the community mental health center as psychiatric or mental health professionals, so you know the white male uh, psychiatrists, for example, and the people in the community who were often not white, not um, not even English speaking in some places. So these indigenous uh, non-professionals really helped to figure out what was really going on. Um, So... After, you know, if, if, if the, the patient had 30 minutes or 15 minutes and was a psychiatrist, the, the non-professional might spend a lot more time with them figuring out what was going on in the home, what was happening in terms of um, 
in, in terms of the financial situation, housing issues, all these sort of things, and try to provide those sorts of solutions. Um, so I think, you know, that previously social workers would have done some of this work, but still, I mean, many social workers, even by the 1960s, came from different backgrounds and they wouldn't necessarily come from that community. So these Indigenous non-professionals were able to provide a lot of that really basic preventive work um, to try to ensure, I guess on the one hand, that people in the community viewed the community mental health centre more positively, that they saw it more as a, a facet of the community rather than you know something being opposed on them. But also they also... They also worked closely with people in the community to, to try to resolve some of the issues that were causing mental health problems uh, in the first place. So unfortunately, uh, community mental health uh, does does not really receive the support it, it requires in order to be effective. And by the 1970s and certainly by the 1980s and Ronald Reagan's election, it's, it's seen as kind of a, a failed enterprise in many ways. There's still there's still plenty of community mental health efforts that are underway in the United States still, and some of them are very effective. But in terms of uh, the initial goal of a federally funded nationwide uh, network of community mental health centers, you know, well over a thousand of them serving, you know, every American basically, that just didn't happen. Um, so it's kind of a, an, an example of how sometimes when, when there are attempts to transform theory into policy and practice, um, you know, it, <laughs> there are definitely uh, obstacles in the way. And, and in this case, uh, you know, politics and, and I suppose uh, politics, but I guess politics at different levels, politics in terms of the, the big political situation, should the government be funding these sorts of things, but also politics at the more local level, should, you know, should psychiatrists be ceding some of their responsibility and authority to Indigenous non-professionals, um, mm-hmm. those sort of factors interfered with the, uh, with the f- full flourishing of community mental health. Right. And, and so this brings us to the fall of, of social psychiatry. So by the 1990s, social psychiatry's gone from being, um, this is a quote, you write that it's gone from being the driving force within mental health policy to being largely forgotten. So uh, forgotten. How do anti-psychiatry, radical psychiatry, and the psychiatric survivors movement and biological psychiatry all influence the decline of social psychiatry? That's a, a lot of um, things going against it. <laughs> well, you know, the word forgotten, I'll just touch on that briefly, because I, I've given a, f- a few talks in the United States to mental health professionals on social psychiatry. And the first thing I do is I ask them if they know what it, what, know what it is. And by and large, none of them do. I asked this in 2015, when I was in New York City, um, Speaking to the New York Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, yes, it, it's you know it's still called that. Um, none of them. There were about a hundred people online and in person. None of them knew what it was. And I asked this of uh, people in Pennsylvania when I gave a presentation there this 
this past October, and none of them, none of them knew what it was. So, I think forgotten is a is a is the correct term. So, yeah, what happens? I think there are the factors within psychiatry. I think the changes happening in psychiatry, I suppose, put social psychiatry in a bit of a tight spot. So, on the one hand you have the emergence of much more radical approaches to mental health. Uh, so like you say, the radical psychiatrists, uh, anti-psychiatrists, and the psychiatric survivor or the consu- psychiatric consumer movements. And these these approaches uh, go quite a lot further than social psychiatry in terms of arguing what should be done. So I suppose it's important to note that although some of the implications of what the social psychiatrists were uh, finding in the research were quite radical. So, you know, if you're saying that, you know, poverty and inequality are are the problems, you know, there, there are some ways of dealing with that that are fairly radical. Social psychiatrists themselves most of them were not. I mean, they, you know, they they would have been. Most of them, not all. Most of them were were Democrats, you know, but they weren't necessarily far left leaning Democrats. They would have been, yeah, they would have been on board with uh, President Johnson and and the Great Society. But you know that that wasn't necessarily a particularly radical approach in some ways either. So they they weren't. So on the one hand, on the one side of them, they were being outflanked by anti-psychiatrists who were arguing that mental illness was a myth. Social psychiatrists definitely did not feel that. They 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 definitely believed that mental illness had what was based in reality. They weren't they weren't arguing the sort of things that Thomas Sauce and and Artie Lang were were saying about uh, mental illness. Um, and they also, I guess. In terms of the psychiatric survivors movement, they, they were also, you know, they were also psychiatrists. They still, were well, not all of them, some of them were social scientists, but they, they still believed that the truth was going to be found through research. It wasn't necessarily going to be through talking to people. And in fact, when you, when you look at, at some of the interpretations of the anthropological research that social psychiatrists did in in communities, especially poor communities, it it can ac- come across today as being quite judgmental. So they weren't necessarily going to be, you know, yes, the patient must know everything. <laughs> I'll take a back seat. They weren't going to do that either. Um, so on the one hand. They're being outflanked on that side. On the other side, um, we also see pretty much at the exact same time as social psychiatry becoming prominent, the emergence of psychopharmacology and the and the return of biological psychiatry. So, biological psychiatry had been I mean, it's it's always been there in, in one shape one one way or another, um, but in the nineteen 19- 40s and 50s in particular, it 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 lost a certain amount of, of respectability because of the use of electroconvulsive therapy, insulin shock therapy, and lobotomies most uh, scandalously. So, but by the 1950s, uh, 
researchers start, are starting to come up with uh, psychopharmaceutical drugs to treat uh, people with psychosis, with anxiety, with depression. And although there's there's plenty of debate to be had about those drugs, they provide psychiatrists with uh, the sense that, hold on, maybe we should be looking at this in another way. Maybe we should be looking at it more in terms of the brain, neurology, uh, genetics, and psychopharmacology. So social psychiatry is really squeezed out by these two factors, one being the biological return of biological thinking in psychiatry, and on the other hand, even more radical approaches. And and I think because of that, they, they, they just sort of get squeezed out of the way. And and a lot of the, the a lot of the people getting attention in the nineteen seventies when it comes to when it comes to psychiatry are not the social psychiatrists anymore. It's more people that are advocating really strongly for uh so for biological approaches or people arguing for anti-psychiatric, radical, or patient uh, mad people's uh, approaches. And yeah, that, you know, it, I think it's it's understandable that that happened. But again, that's not a reason to reject social psychiatry. That's a reason to understand the historical context for why things happen in the way they do. Right. And um you, this one of the really cool things about this book is that it's it's really um, you know it's an applied history and it's a relevant history and once you get to the end there is that sort of there are sort of clear um, take home um, messages for for us today. Um, you argue that one of the failures of social psychiatry was the researchers' reticence to offer policy solutions to the problem of inequality and then conclude the book by advocating for a universal basic income. Could you talk a little bit about what is the universal basic income? And then um, how does this kind of discussion of UBI sort of follow naturally from uh, your uh, analysis of the history of social psychiatry? Sure. So a universal basic income is a guaranteed income that's give to, given to everyone in, in society without any uh, means testing or requirements. Uh, you get it whether you're working or not. And it's, it's, if set properly, it's set at a level to ensure that everyone in society has enough uh, income to lift them above the poverty line and provide them with their, with their basic needs. So... I I came across this this concept fairly late on. So in in 2014, the, the very year that this project started, um, and it just occurred to me that when I looked at the social psychiatrists and you know, you go you go to their conclusions, you you go to their discussion sections, and you you just trying to find something that says, okay, what do we do about all this? But I think for many of them, they really thought that this was going to be a long-term project that would that would be worked on for decades, and then eventually, this miraculous truth would would emerge, and then something would be done. Now, that just didn't happen. There were some studies that carried on and on and on, and kind of almost got stuck in in the. In the in a rut, doing the same sorts of thing, almost like a, a broken record. And then some of the other studies simply broke up and there was nothing happened afterwards. So 
But when I looked at these different studies, the, the, the three main things that emerge are the role of poverty, inequality, slash racism, and uh, social disintegration, or and as well as social isolation. And when I was thinking about, okay, so how could we address these sort of things? Universal basic income emerged as a, as a possible solution. So UBI can address each one of these factors that was believed to uh, contribute to mental illness. So if it's set at the right rate, it can eliminate poverty. Because it's a universal basic income, it sort of it reduces or eliminates a lot of the stigma that's associated with welfare and being on benefits. And it also allows for a much greater uh, social mobility because people can go back to school at any point in their life. They can uh, start their own business, perhaps go into creative uh, careers where you know they don't have to be waiting tables, <laughs> waiting for that acting job to to come. They can just focus on their art. And then, in terms of social disintegration. It allows people, because they have this income, to give back to their community. So, you know, if they, if they they want to spend their time working in the community, working with young people or old people or environmental initiatives or whatever, it allows them to do that. So, it allow and allows people to be much more productive in terms of what they do. And I thought all of these things, all of these features or potential benefits of basic income addressed the main factors that social psychiatrists had identified during the 1950s and 60s. So I certainly wouldn't argue that that it's a panacea. I, I, I would see it, and actually you know, most economists who talk about basic income also don't see it as a panacea. It's more of a, a different foundation uh, on which the uh, other policies to build a more progressive, uh, productive society could be built. But it's, I think it's an important one. I mean, w- one metaphor that I sometimes use is that right now, uh, mental illness is a bit like Archimedes jumping into the, into the, the tub and all the, all the water is spilling over. And that, that's, that's the excess uh, mental illness happening in, in societies right now. Archimedes kind of recommend or represents the, those socioeconomic factors. We need to get them out of the bathtub. <laughs> we need to address those socioeconomic factors. There's still going to be a lot of mental illness in the tub, stretching the metaphor far, far more than I really need to. But there's still going to be a lot of mental illness. But we just need to get rid of, I, I, I suppose, the, the bulk of the socially derived mental illness. Um, and I think that's where that's where universal basic income could be really powerful. Um, and you know, I've I've been arguing this uh, for the last few years uh, to to mental health professionals, to the Scottish government here, and you know, I mean, it hasn't happened yet, but certainly since the pandemic, because there were some not universal basic income models, but the, but because people had to be provided a, an income when they, when their jobs were uh, cut off because of the pandemic and lockdown, it did make different governments think a bit more about hmm maybe this there is something to this. And in, in the last uh, Hollywood, so this is the Scottish election, four to the five main parties um, recommended uh, or had universal basic income in their manifestos. So. 
it is something that is a bit more on the radar radar now than it has been in the past. And I suppose my argument to the UBI advocates is that, listen, one of the ways that you'll get this across the line is to think about mental health and health more broadly as a potential benefit, you know, one of the benefits of UBI is, is improving health and mental health. So, um, but yeah, I mean, for me, I don't, I don't, none of my historical projects have been done without thinking about the applications in real life. I I think that's, that's, that's just where I came to history. But I think looking at that in a different way, the real argument is that if we want to tackle pressing social problems like mental illness, then turning to history is, is, is a really good starting point. Well, it's um, for our fellow historians of medicine, historians of psychiatry. It, it, um, this book is, is a wonderful example of writing history that is, is relevant um, to, um, to policy and to present day pressing questions of issues like inequality and, and things like that. Um, Matt, that brings us to our traditional final question, which is, um, now that the first resort is out in the world, what are you working on next? Well, that kind of depends on the results of some f- funding applications. Um, I'll give you two. Two. One is directly related. So when I was doing the social psychiatry research, I realized that no one had really done a proper comprehensive history of community mental health in the United States. So I've, I've submitted a big application to the same funder, the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Um, and I hope if we get that, then we'll be able to tackle that. So this would be a big project involving quite a few researchers looking as, at, as, as much of the United States as possible and the entirety of the, of the 20th century. So encompassing both mental hygiene and child guidance, as well as community mental health uh, care that emerges uh, in the 1950s and 60s. So that's that's the first project. The other project is is a bit more tangential, but still has a bit of a preventive aspect to it. And that that's I'm, I became really fascinated over here during the pandemic. A lot of people turned to uh, wild swimming or outdoor swimming. And now coming from Western Alberta. Or Western Canada from Alberta, the thought of wild swimming in the winter, I mean, it's impossible because you can't get at the water, but um, it is a bit of a scary thought for me. But I know from my historical research and my teaching that water has played a role as a therapy in, 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 um, in terms of psychiatric practice and, and well before psychiatry was a thing uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. So that's the other project I'd like to look at is hydrotherapy and, and psychiatric practice. And that if that would be a long durée project, which is something that I'm really tempted by. So going all the way back to the early modern, maybe even the medieval period, looking at holy wells and all these sorts of things, and then bringing it all the way up through the asylum era and up until uh, therapeutic swimming today. So uh, I would be I would be thrilled to do either one of those projects. <laughs> well, they both sound fascinating, Matt. Wow, great. Um, and I, I look forward to uh, reading them in the not hopefully too distant future. Um, thank, thank you so much for taking time to, to come on the NBN and share the first resort with us. All right. Thank you very much for having me, Claire.